Marsha Ferber was a folk hero to the people of Morgantown. She fostered outcasts, wanderers, and anyone who needed her help. She was well known for her generosity, sharing, and kindness. Then one day in April 1988, she vanished. It's still an open police case with the Morgantown Police Department to this day and has left a community wanting answers. Around 500 people participated in a 25th anniversary reunion weekend in 2013 in her honor. She was also known for supplementing her business's income through the sale of marijuana and potentially other drugs. Marsha was allegedly last seen by a friend who was running errands with her in Pittsburgh and claims to have dropped her off in Morgantown. The mystery surrounding her disappearance has resulted in several different theories. Some theorize that she simply wanted to move away and fled Morgantown on her own accord, but she left behind her car, her money, and coat, leading others to think that foul play was involved, or that maybe she was put in witness protection for her drug involvement. A podcasting group consisting of a friend of Marsha's and her daughter decided to do their own deep dive into the potential fates of Marsha Ferber. What they found, however, was more than they bargained for. Welcome to Crime in the Coal Fields. I'm your host, Izzy Post, and every other Tuesday, we take a deep dive into the most notorious and bizarre crime cases here in the Mountain State. Tonight's episode also features a set of very special guests with a close connection to this case. This podcast is a 59 News exclusive podcast sponsored by Rosenquestenberry Funeral Homes and Notoriously Morbid. When originality is everything, Notoriously Morbid has you covered. We offer a full array of exciting cosmetics, and if alternative clothing is your style, we have it. Check us out online or stop by. Notoriously Morbid. Embrace your beautiful darkness. How would you like to relieve the emotional and financial burden off of those you love, express your own wishes, and avoid conflicts among family members? Call Sandy Evans at Rosenquist and Barry today. During this week's episode, we're taking a look at Marsha Ferber's case with the cooperation of an investigative duo who knew the woman. A new podcast from Wonder Media titled I Was Never There made its debut on June 9th. It's already picked as an audio selection for this year's Tribeca Festival. Our guests were motivated to investigate the case in a podcast format in order to better know what might have happened to an old friend and to share it with those who wonder. I'm Jamie Zellermeyer, Z-E-L-E-R-M-Y-E-R, and I am the show crea- the creator and ho- co-host of I Was Never There. And I am Karen Zellermeyer, uh, Jamie's mother, and also co-creator and co-host of I Was Never There. Our podcast is called I Was Never There. You can listen on Apple, Spotify, Audible, anywhere you listen to podcasts. It's eight episodes. All eight episodes are out now. Um, Again, I Was Never There, anywhere you listen to podcasts. We reached out to the minds behind the podcast, I Was Never There, Karen Zellermeyer and her daughter, Jamie, and they helped us not only break down the possibilities of this case, 
but also told us who Marsha was. She was a really special, dynamic, outrageously funny, sardonic, radical woman who was not afraid to take risks and make change. And she had an amazing impact on the progressive community in Morgantown and created this fabulous space. And that's, and I, and I loved her. We were soul sisters and we came from a similar trajectory as New Jersey housewives who moved back to the land and rural West Virginia, Marsha and Calhoun County, and we moved to Braxton County. Marsha moved from her place in New Jersey with her family and another couple to start the Mud Farm Commune in Calhoun County, West Virginia in the early 1970s. She moved to Morgantown in the later 70s, where she then started the storied Underground Railroad Nightclub and the Dry House All Ages Club next door. Um, and we both landed in Morgantown where uh, Jamie and I and Jamie's sister Sarah all lived with Marcia in the communal house that she operated called Earth House. And then I uh, put myself through graduate school working at the bar that she opened, the bars that she opened in Morgantown, the Underground Railroads, and eventually the Dry House. So she was a, a dear friend, a comrade, someone we shared a a vision of the world and a belief that we could change the world and so we she was my she was my sister she booked an eclectic mix of emerging and top-notch performers and generally stirred the pot in the area i grew up in west virginia until i was 11 and have always been interested in telling the story of my childhood in west virginia which was sort of non-traditional back to the land experience um, and when I was 15 years old, one of my parents' closest friends, Marsha Ferber, disappeared without a trace. And she kind of went out to run an errand, left her coat on her chair, her wallet on her desk, and was never seen again. And that was April 25th, 1988. And so when we were thinking about telling the story of both my childhood and our love of West Virginia, it just felt like we couldn't not tell Marsha's story too. And that turned us into, we call ourselves junior detectives or accidental detectives and got us looking into Marsha's cold case. Everyone knew that Marsha was into marijuana. She was a member of the counterculture during the 70s. So it's a little obvious that she was involved in alcohol, music and weed. Well, we know, and my mom, maybe we can fill it in together, but we know that she, we know that she had recently been in New York getting weed. We know that's, <clears throat> she got her weed from many places. New York was one of them. Um, also some hash. We know that she was getting together with this guy named Gary Perkins, who was um, someone she had met. She had used to volunteer at the Kennedy Center, which was a minimum security men's prison in Morgantown for drug offenders, art, uh, art theft offenders. Um, so we knew she was getting together with Gary Perkins, who he, he claims he was coming to show her something about some properties in Florida. Uh, but they have they had a long history of doing business together. And to be clear, Marsha always sold weed. 
So she sold weed when she was a back-to-the-land hippie in Calhoun County. She sold it in Morgantown. It was one of the ways that she subsidized her endeavors. Uh, so she had always she had always sold weed. But what we didn't know was the extent to which that business had grown and, in fact, might have actually kind of... Uh, moved into uh, other what I would call drugs. So to be clear, I don't consider marijuana a drug, but she got, I think, got involved with cocaine. So the business, her business became increasingly risky about the, the, her side, what, what she considered to be a side business. We know she went to Pittsburgh that day with Gary Perkins. He claims he dropped her off. We also believe she went to Marjorie Gardens sometime around that either that you know the, the night before or that day um it's possible also that she dropped a backpack off with some people um but we don't have corroboration of that but we know she went to pittsburgh we know she had a meal in pittsburgh we know um and gary says he dropped her off at the underground but that's no nobody, one ever nobody, saw her after yeah. that nobody ever saw her Despite her positive impacts on the community and almost everyone she touched, Zeller Myers uncovered dark truths about what Marsha was up to when she unusually disappeared and how that might explain why she disappeared for good. Marsha ended up being progressively more involved in drugs. According to what Karen and Jamie found, Marsha was expanding her backdoor operations to make room for more serious stuff than just marijuana. I was not aware that she was expanding her business. I was aware. So I, we were living in New York City at that point. So while we remained very close to Marsha, when we would see her, it would be because she was coming up to New York to meet with her weed connection. And she would stay with us and sleep on our couch. And, you know, we'd walk around the city and so we stayed very close in fact we had celebrated our birthdays together about three weeks before with another friend we met in uh baltimore uh but so no i was i knew that she liked cocaine i knew that she was probably or i was worried that she was consuming more cocaine than was good for her but in terms of the extent of her business, the size of the business, the, what I thought was selling dime bags out of her knitting bag was actually more like hundreds of pounds weed. And some evidence that, in fact, she was also starting to sell cocaine. The craziest discovery that was made over the course of Karen and Jamie's investigation was that Marsha made trips to South America, primarily Nicaragua, presumably for similar reasons to her other trips elsewhere. She was making international drug runs. You know, on our podcast, we learned that she was taking trips to South America. Our guess is there were just maybe a handful or less of those trips to Nicaragua and Colombia, but we we were we knew nothing of those nor did most people, you know, as we like to say, she had a lot of rooms and you were only allowed into, you know, a, a couple of them. And she was very good at keeping stuff compartmentalized. It was mind blowing. I mean, it was a good friend of ours who is, you know, 
definitely no longer in the business, uh, who ended up going to graduate school and becoming, you know, a social worker, but they were partners and, uh, and Michelle says that they went to Nicaragua, they went to Colombia, they were on a boat that was potentially blown up. Um, and we have had other people tell us that they knew stuff about these trips or one person who said that he helped fund these trips. So we do believe that these trips happened for sure. Um, you know, we're talking 1980, early 1980s, 85 to 88. Yeah. And they're just, the record keeping is very, like, you know, you can't get records of air travel or, um, and even the police seem to only keep paper stuff for so long. So it's been it's been hard to get too much information. Marsha's actual disappearance didn't make too many waves when it happened. No one really noticed that our lovable bar owner was even missing until about a week later. They noticed that she wasn't at the bar when she normally would have been. That's when her disappearance became real. Well, first of all, it took about a week because Marsha was someone that was not out of out of the realm of her behavior that she would take off for a few days and go somewhere sometimes it was up to new york or she obviously she made these trips to nicaragua and colombia and we have been told stories of her going to florida and bringing back hundreds of pounds of weed uh, so she would go so nobody was worried that in the begin in the first couple of days that she was gone it was really about a week later and the fact that there was a band playing at the bar and she always liked to be at the bar when out of town bands were playing and she didn't show up for this, that people started getting worried. So I was first alerted when I got a call from some of the folks at the bar asking if I had seen her. Was she with us in New York? And we hadn't seen her and it was at that point that everybody was like, oh, shit man what what's going on here and i immediately drove down to morgantown and met up with some other folks all of whom we were all like what do we do what's going on here and her family um marcia has a brother and a niece they were very actively working with the police at the time um they really wanted to try to figure out what happened i think they started to feel like it got a little dangerous maybe that it just wasn't a path that they wanted to keep going time passed and nothing came of it but and i do believe that there were people who maybe talked about hiring a private investigator i've been told this story about someone who put an article uh an, an ad in the village voice saying meet me like to a message to marcia saying meet me at this particular diner and then went to the diner and waited but she never showed up um there were definitely people who thought she intentionally disappeared. And, and we've definitely heard in the podcast that pe people have said that she was telling them that if one day she was gone, not to worry. And, you know, that she was setting up the bar for sort of cooperative ownership for the people. Um, and she, had told, she had told her uh, friend slash roommate, Jack Herbert, that, she was working on a deal. She might be gone for a while. And when she came back, they would be set for life. And so, and she had a waterbed and she used to keep money under the waterbed. And the waterbed had been emptied, as in not slashed or, you know, ripped up, 
but drained and there was no money under the bed. So Jack initially felt like wherever she was, she left intentionally, she would be back. And obviously she didn't come back and eventually they filed a police report and, and the police got involved. The official investigation of the case was not fruitful. Part of the reason that Karen and Jamie started the podcast, I Was Never There, was because the police did little to uncover the truth. Not only that, but like many cases that we bring you here on Crime in the Coalfields, it's an open investigation. They did not exhaust anything, but, you know, it was, I would say, was pretty sloppy uh, policing back then. Uh, lots of stuff that they did not follow up with, including someone who told them that Marsha had brought $32,000 worth of weed back to Morgantown the weekend before and that she was going off with Gary Perkins to, to sell it. They never followed up on any of that. I mean, there was a lot of stuff they didn't follow up on. When we did file Freedom of Information Act uh, requests, but basically, they, they consider it an open case. And because it's an open case, they won't share any information. It's not with us. I mean, I will say the police detective, PJ Scott, has been great. And he is very open to looking into stuff, although he seems to shoot down all of our theories. Although he has acknowledged more and more, the, the, it seems that they were not really that aware of the magnitude of, the, of her business. She was, was definitely dealing going on than they had ever realized. She was definitely under the radar. I, it's been it's which is always really surprising to me that part. There is a tip line. You can call the Morgantown Police Department if like there there have to be people who have some idea of what happened. And just because we didn't solve it doesn't mean it can't be solved. And uh, and we would just say this was 34 years ago and it can be anonymous, but. This was somebody's mother, you know, she had two kids, and I'm sure there are a lot of people who would like some closure, and I think that, that, that just to keep that in mind. Karen and Jamie uncovered many possibilities about what could have happened to Marsha. I mean, Marty Biafora says that he was in a Fairmont police, you know, and he was arrested, he was caught up in a, a snitching situation from, actually from his cousin, he and he was, yeah, he was set, set up, up by his cousins. But he was arrested in Fairmont and was in, uh, you know, an interrogation room of sorts and was shown a file that he believes was Marsha snitching on all of the local dealers in the area, including himself, including other people. And it's, it's without being able to see what that was, I mean, that's his story and that's 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 his story. He believes it. Um, I mean, could they have been showing him something else to try to get him to think it was Marsha, to get him to snitch on her? Or it's hard to know, but that's what he believes he saw. And there are people who think that she potentially had some inf- inside information on this big bust that happened in Morgantown after she disappeared that was also related to Marjorie Gardens. That she gave warnings and, to people. Yeah, that she gave warnings to people. There was a possibility that Marsha snitched on fellow drug dealers for some unknown reason. So what actually happened to Marsha? There are a whole range of theories, including murder, 
intentional disappearance, witness protection, and more. But our guests say they think that they know what happened. The most likely option is probably that someone murdered her. Whether that was in Pittsburgh or she came back from Pittsburgh and it happened after she got back from Pittsburgh, like she maybe she went out to do something else or she went out to meet somebody because she didn't take her stuff with her. So if she came back from Pittsburgh, went in, put her stuff down and then came back out, she clearly was going to maybe see somebody she knew. Um, I, having said all that, it, there are a lot of people who say she was setting herself up for intentional disappearance. It's probably not and uh, or that or there's the witness protection theory but we haven't quite been able to find a case big enough that seems to support a witness protection theory but um i don't know you know it's hard you guys when you do these look into these stories it's very easy to get pulled into each theory and see why each one could could or could not be true i think probably we both think the most likely scenario is that someone murdered her um and if they did we no one has found out who this is and somebody knows who did it for sure you know one of the challenges of doing something like this podcast has been it's a it's a very weighty responsibility that you don't want to accuse someone right throw out a name say oh i think maybe this guy or this person did this because we we don't know and so to throw that out into the universe without any substantive, anything we can corroborate, co corroborate or approve is, is a challenge. So, yeah, I think it was a drug deal gone bad. Uh, I think Jamie's scenarios are right. It was either in Pittsburgh, like you, you said, Izzy, there's a real connection. Uh, I don't know whether you'd call it a mafia connection or what it was between Pittsburgh and, but we know that there were some dangerous people that were involved. Or, yeah, there were some other, there, we, I mean, we've been given names by people, but there's nothing who think, you know, we were told, oh, when Marsha disappeared, the partying started in Morgantown. So I think those are the two likeliest scenarios. I don't, I continue to believe that she would never intentionally leave just wasn't who she was we joke a lot about the fact that she was someone who couldn't pass a phone booth without calling somebody checking in with someone she was compulsively connected to people marcia was a force for good she was also caught up in dark habits she was an example of the duality and the secret lives that can lead the unfortunate fates we see on this podcast you know it's about drugs and it's about cocaine and heroin, which I think were the two drugs that she might have gotten involved with. But they are life-killing drugs. And so I, and because she liked doing those drugs, I think one way or another, the drugs killed her and really kind of tarnished her or challenged or really threatened her moral compass i mean she got really lost and really dark but i don't think that was her i think that was the drugs yeah someone said to us the other day it wasn't someone said to us the other day it wasn't it wasn't 
the, it was that it was something about the drugs and that like it wasn't the people who killed her it was cocaine that killed her like this idea that the, 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 the bigger picture of drugs in general you know overall that they they're dangerous uh, and even if she intentionally disappeared it was still related to drugs probably so either either way despite having all these secrets in her life she didn't get away with it forever she didn't get away with it though that's the whole thing she's gone she's gone so she didn't get away with anything Karen and Jamie feel that they know more about her now. They say that Marsha was ultimately a complex woman and that she did good for the whole area, not just Morgantown. I mean, I think she, that I don't think it's, I think people have had, it's been hard to listen to parts of the podcast, but I think the people, you know, the, the people who were the the dry housers, people who went, you know, who went to the bar. I mean, I think they still see a lot of positivity in what she created, which was this cultural music scene, cultural political music scene in Morgantown, which wasn't just about Morgantown. I mean, it was really about West Virginia, Ohio, you know, uh, Maryland, you know, Pittsburgh. Um, I think it was it was it was bigger than just Morgantown. So I think people I think a lot of people will still hold on to that sort of this folk hero image. But you I know think... what? She brought out the best in people, though, especially all those dry house kids I, who are no longer kids, of course. But she really brought out the best in people. And I still hold on to that. I think people will just think she's more complicated now. And I think there are people who would say, well, I don't see the good. And maybe and, and that's OK, too. There are certainly people who have I've seen write in messages or we had this listening party in uh, Morgantown and Charleston the other day, you know, and I, it, where people will say, I don't, I don't get what, what everyone saw in her. Obviously, she was doing these bad things and, and, you know, that's what I see. But I think, I think for most people, the good outweighs the bad. People are complicated. I mean, we're all complicated, that no one's perfect. And obviously that doesn't excuse the drug behavior I don't want to excuse that part of the story, um, but I, you you can be more than one thing, and, and that pe- people can, you know, as we say in the, you know, if, if someone says, you know, you can be loved warts and all, but it, but there is there is does have to be some sensitivity around the drug stuff because it, you know, drugs are they're not they're not good. Uh, clearly, it got her in trouble, and I would never want to soften soften that because people may have been affected in negative ways. Also, it was hard. It was a hard story to tell. There were a lot, a lot of elements and a lot of good, but also, you know, somebody said to to DL at some point, like I like that we, you know, we always that we she felt like we told it fairly, you know, that we didn't ignore the bad, but it was hard. It was hard to balance and make. sure you know, you don't want to completely tear someone down, but, but it was comp- it's a complicated story. Thanks for listening to this week's special joint edition of Crime in the Coalfields and I Was Never There. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Marsha Ferber, contact the state police or Morgantown Police Department. You can also leave tips anonymously. If you enjoyed our guests, Karen and Jamie Zellermeyer, Listen to their series about Marsha and their findings as they uncovered them 
and their podcast called I Was Never There, available on all podcast platforms. Now, if you liked this episode, be sure to give us a five-star rating wherever you're listening and recommend it to a friend. If you have any information about any crime in the coal fields and you would like to talk about it, contact us and you could be featured on the podcast. Or if you just have a case you would like for us to explore, drop us a line. This episode has been an exclusive podcast experience presented by 59 News, sponsored by Rosen Quessenberry Funeral Homes and Notoriously Morbid, written by Harper Emsch and Izzy Post and hosted by Izzy Post with production assistance by Harper Emsch and Brandon Eanes.